Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Lucien Alzari, Executive Vice President and CHRO of Prudential Financial, a Fortune 50 financial services company. Prior to joining Prudential, Lucien was the EVP and CHRO of AP Moller Maersk, a shipping and energy conglomerate with 90,000 employees with operations in 130 countries worldwide. Lucien is also a fellow and director of the National Academy of Human Resources, a founding member of HR 50 and chair-elect of the Board of Advisors of the Center of Executive Succession at the University of South Carolina. Lucien, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harpreet. Very happy to be here. So, Lucien, um, you've had a very international career and have led HR teams at some great organizations. Love to start by learning about uh, your journey so far. Well, as you say, I, I've had a career that I never would have imagined. I've uh, been very lucky to work for some very good companies. And, um, you know, like many, I kind of made my name at PepsiCo. So I was chief talent officer there and um, have now, uh, I'm now in my third go at being a chief HR officer. So uh, hopefully it gets better each time you do it. But uh, this this is the last one. Um, and... Um, they are wonderful roles, and and in in the course of that, I've visited 85, 90 countries. I've had a life that I never would have imagined, and uh, and I've always found the chief HR officer role just to be um, right at the centre of the best companies. So uh, there's nothing else that I would rather have done. So, Lucien, uh, COVID nineteen has a, had a great impact on all of us and uh, it's been a force of change in many ways. What would you think are the key lessons and challenges that are going to stay with us long-term? And specifically for Prudential, what, what, what has changed? Well, the, the way I, I like to frame um, COVID is, you know, it, it's been a terrible experience for the world and and there's no way of dressing that up um having said that it's been a real moment in time for the hr function across all corporations all companies and um you know like i like to tell people that in the great financial crisis what got you through was having a great cfo and a great finance function and in this crisis companies have really had to lean on the hr function and they kind of get the HR function that they deserve. So if they saw HR as, you know, just an administrative function, um, they probably got less than they hoped for. And if they really understood the pivotal role that HR can play in um, helping companies think about how to compete differently, how to uh, keep em employees engaged and productive through, you know, really rapid disruption, and then come out the other side better off for the experience, then they're going to get even more than they hoped for. So um, I hope the latter is the experience that Prudential Financial has, has had of, of HR. I, I think, um, you know, what, one of the phrases that uh, I've learned along the way is, you know, you, you 
try and make lemonade when you get given lemons. And Lord knows we've been given enough lemons over the, the last year. But um, if you just think about the, the speed, the flexibility, the decisiveness that we've all had to demonstrate, um, those are the things that we kind of we need to bottle them up and keep them and make them part of, of how we do business in the future. And coming into the pandemic, like, like you, I was involved in many, many discussions about the future of work. And um, I told my, my colleagues that at Prudential, if 15 months ago we would have said, let's take six of our highest potential leaders and ask them what would it take to move 98% of our US workforce um, to working remotely within 36 hours. It would have been an 18 month project. There would have been 12 meetings of the risk committee and at the end of it, we would have decided it was too risky to do it, but we did it, All right? And so um, a lot of the conversation that we're having with, with ourselves now is, this isn't about us telling you what you're capable of, just look back at what you've done, all right? Look at the change that you've taken on, look at the adaptability that you've shown, and let that be uh, kind of an inspiration and in some ways a provocation to us that we can't go back. We have to take the lessons from this and, and move forward. And so um, we've really kind of taken that as the spirit. Another thing that we've done much more actively throughout the pandemic, uh, just because we really wanted to know how our employees were feeling and we wanted them to feel that they were our number one interest in terms of how we bring our business through, was we've done um, much more formal sort of surveying of employees, soliciting feedback, and um, that has turned into uh, a bit of a practice with the surveys around the American workers so that we can share um, what workers across America are, are feeling about um, employment. Um, and then just in terms of culture, which is really, I think, the biggest differentiator and something that you couldn't create on the fly. You, you had what you had. Um, but for us, the, the emphasis on empathy, um, leaders really connecting with their people, uh, the expectation of, of flexibility and the way in which providing that has paid back 10x for us as a company. Um, and the fact that we all operate like this now, it's much less hierarchical. It's easy to kind of get to each other. Uh, those are all things that I think we're trying to take forward as we're, uh, as we're moving into the next chapter. And that's very interesting. Uh, so many uh, companies uh, are, are now doing future work, but they're doing it in bits and pieces. Prudential, you know, I, I see you have a future work uh, function. You have a, yeah. an actual group and people with that title for, for, for a while now. So you, you actually yeah. have a strategy. Uh, may, maybe talk about what that strategy is and, and uh, you know, how that strategy has evolved with the pandemic. Well, as you say, we had a, a, a team uh, already in place looking at the future of work. And then, of course, we found out, well, we're in it now. We're, it's no longer about the future of work. We're, we're in the future of work. Um, and so a couple of things became evident to us very early. And, and I, I don't think we were especially insightful about that. I think a lot of people were having some of the same questions. I think the thing that made um, differentiate credentials, we really acted on these insights. And so um, I hope we're sort of pretty well along in our journey. And the research that I've seen of peers is that many are considering 
uh, the same issues. Few have made their bets. We've made our bets. So we're, we're moving in a particular direction. So insight number one was um, really for the first time, um, we've separated work and the workplace, right? And before those were always inextricably linked and you, you wanted to be able to do things, but you never quite could get over that, that, that link. Once you separate work from where work, work is done, um, you can think in very imaginative ways about how to do things very, very differently. And that leads you on to, well, then what's the role of the office? All right, what is the role of the workplace? And, and the workplace before was the place where you went to do work, all right? Now we know that's not the case because we've all been doing work away from offices. And so um, that led us to really rethinking, well, why would we have offices and, and what would their role be? And essentially, it comes down to three things for us. One is that there are certain kinds of work, but I would caution everybody, there are very few kinds of work, but there are some where you can demonstrate beyond doubt that that work is better done by having people together um, and, and working together. So for us, a trading desk might be a, a good example. Of, uh, it's pretty strong evidence, although I've even seen some questioning that, but there's pretty strong evidence about um, you get better results by having that team together. So there will be some work where um, that's necessary. Um, the second role then of, of the office is um, bringing people together for parts of work that require collaboration, agile teams, um, team building, um, idea generation and sharing together. So anything where collaboration is kind of the driver of effectiveness would be the second use of an office. And then the third is what I would call cultural injections, where you bring people together to um, keep that sense of human connection, keep that sense of belonging to an enterprise, the belonging to a team, and um, sort of building up the supplies to get you through the next period of time where um, people may well be working for parts of their time um, at home or remotely, whatever their choices around that. So um, for us, what we've tried to do then is to say, um, let's be thoughtful about what does work actually mean? People talk about the future of work. Well, the answer is it's the work. You know, you, you, you have to become much more expert in work. And then what does that mean for the role of the workplace, the office? Um, recognizing that most work can now be done away from offices. And then the third thing that we've really tried to pay attention to is we're a very culture and purpose-driven company. Um, and so um, continuing to connect people back to the underlying purpose of why do we exist in the world? And, and our purpose is, you know, we make lives better by solving the financial challenges in a changing world. And if, if you look at how that's played out, um, our employees know that we were pretty focused on making their lives better than they might otherwise have been. And they've more than repaid our trust in them. Um, that then played into, you can imagine um, the interactions with customers when there was a real financial credit squeeze going on. People wanted to know what their uh, options were. And so we had um, service centers that were close to being overwhelmed because of the just the volume of interest from customers. But the way in which our employees quickly shifted to doing that remotely 
and went out of their way to support customers because they know that's what keeps us in business. That's our culture in action. And um, as I said before, you, you couldn't make that up on the fly. You had what you had, but that was the result of years of, uh, of investment and, and really sort of internalizing why are we here and what is it that makes Prudential hopefully a special place to work. You just mentioned uh, the importance of uh, having a culture and a sense of purpose. Uh, how, how do you inculcate that kind of uh, a, a sense and a mission when people are distributed, when people are remote? Uh, how, do you, how do you see that happening? Yeah, it's actually been one of the sort of existential questions that, uh, that we've been trying to answer. So if you would have asked me 15 months ago, um, we would have said, um, you know, proudly with a very small P because we believe in, in humility at Prudential, but we really believe in our culture. And we put a lot of time and effort into um, onboarding, um, having people feel like they're, they're part of a culture that is relatively unusual, particularly for our industry. Um, and then, of course, we went remote and we've hired probably 1,200, 1,500 people over the last year. Um, and we've never met them, all right? Um, and it, it, it's really strange when you put it like that, but we've never met them. We've got direct reports to the CEO that um, I have a very good relationship with. I've never met them, all right? Um, and so one of the things that we were really intrigued about was what, what is the impact on culture of having this, you know, influx of people who are coming to us through other means? and um, Really, our conclusion so far, and, and I hope I'm not wrong on this, is we haven't noticed any discernible difference um, in, in the impact on culture and the way in which we can bring people in, have them feel, feel part of the family, having them feel um, just as attached to their colleagues. Um, I think everybody would say, boy, it would be nice to see each other from time to time. Um, but I think the impact there is on the margins. I don't think it's sort of fundamental to your to your ability to keep the culture that you want to have. You've just got to be very purposeful about it. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Experfy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.experfy.com for more information. Our workforce has changed over the last few years uh, with the entry of millennials uh, into the system. We've got baby boomers leaving. Uh, so with a new generation uh, of workforce entering, you've got you know different expectations uh, from employers, careers. And then you also have this context where AI is becoming more prominent and there is a fear uh, around you know AI displacing jobs. Uh, so, how do you see 
prudential grappling with this new context as you move forward? Yeah, I'd start off halfway by, by saying, forgive me if I sound like a bit of a dinosaur, but I've heard the, you know, this generation is fundamentally different probably seven times in my career. And so I'm a little bit skeptical of, you know, this generation is fundamentally different from any other group that's ever worked for, uh, for us before. Having said that, I do think uh, sort of two or three areas where um, the, the people who are coming into the workforce now uh, are different in terms of point of emphasis. One is um, comfort with technology that they grow up with it. It's sort of second nature to them. That's a positive for us as a company. Um, secondly, the expectation of diversity and inclusion. Um, that again, that's the world that they've grown up with and they expect that of their workplace, which is again, a positive for us. Um, the comfort with doing work wherever it needs to be done, so remote for them, that's not a big deal, much less of a big deal than it was for, for some of the rest of us, including me. Um, and then I think another um, interesting thing that's playing out, their expectation that the company they work for shares their values and is prepared to advocate for their values um, on public issues that I think in years gone by companies would have been saying nothing about. Um, and that I think has been a major change over the last year. And um, they expect us to be taking uh, positions on sort of societal issues. Um, and the message is very clear that saying nothing is saying something. And so, um, you know, obviously you've got to be choiceful about that. Um, but I think those are three or four dimensions that uh, they bring to um, the overall diversity of the workforce that I think have actually been good for us. The former HBS professor, uh, Clayton Christensen, in his book, yep. The Innovator's Dilemma, he wrote about the high cost that is paid by large companies when they fail to empower their innovation teams. And, and one of the big themes in reinventing the future of work underscores this idea that autonomy needs to be present in the workforce so people can innovate. So what is your sense uh, of what companies can do to foster that freedom to innovate within the teams while also providing them a clarity of purpose so that they don't veer away too much from the, the, the mission of the company. Yeah, it's a really interesting issue. And, uh, and, and Clay Christensen was certainly, I think, one of the, the foremost thinkers uh, of the last 20, 30 years. So um, I, I think as we've gone through the pandemic, again, reflect on how companies have treated employees. So you've heard of some companies that are frankly skeptical of are their employees going to be doing work when left to themselves? So time and control systems and how do I know that they're working, that they're not doing something else? We didn't do any of that, right? Um, and we uh, just said to our people, we trust you to get the work done. And we recognize that there's a whole other set of issues that you're dealing with that you didn't have to deal with in, in other times, family issues, health looking after elder parents or, or whatever else. And so our expectation was um, we'll show as much flexibility as we can do in terms of uh, expectation around how 
and when work gets done, and we'll trust you to get the work done. We've been paid back 10x on that. Um, so the first is kind of people um, will perform in the way that you um, you kind of indicate to them that you expect them to perform. All right. Um, I think the second thing that we've learned from um, the way in which we work has changed so dramatically is that a lot of things that before we would have said it's all about getting people together and structured process and and, and and hierarchy and all that stuff, we've proven to ourselves we couldn't have it, so we learned to live without it. Um, and and then I think um, one, I, I think there are two ends of the spectrum that are both traps. One is companies that say um, we want everybody to execute and nobody to innovate. But actually, the other one is we want everybody to innovate. And frankly, those companies tend to trip over on execution. And so I think part of the answer is being choiceful about where is the premium in your business model on just world-class execution. And so you've got kind of people working in the system. And how do you create time, space, resources for people to work on the system to innovate the business model, innovate how you compete? Um, and recognize that quite often the DNA of those two types of, of groups are different and um, not sort of blending them all together and expecting you're going to get both at the same time in the same place. To me, has been a learning about um, separation helps and then you've got to think about how you integrate that work back together after the thinking around innovation has taken place. Um, but um, when you think about innovation with sort of a capital I as, as, a, as a large concept. Uh, and you think about what we've all had to do to survive and, and thrive over the last year. It's probably more innovation than we ever thought any of us were capable of doing. And, and that to me is just so validating, so kind of in, inspiring around um, if you treat people properly and that this we're not social workers we're business people we've got high standards on performance and outcomes but the happy truth of uh, particularly being a chief hr officer if if you treat people properly they tend to outperform um those that aren't being treated properly and that's why i love doing the work that i do yeah you, you're, you're absolutely right and you know at the beginning of the pandemic um we saw people like Ray Dalio compare it to the Great Depression, uh, that it was all doom. And, and then you had, on the other hand, uh, folks like Warren Buffet saying, you know, don't, don't bet against America because, uh, uh, you know, people are very innovative here. And, and, and yep. that's really, it's really come out very nicely with what, what every company has been able to do here. Yep. Let's shift gears and, and talk about the role of technology in HR. How, how are you? using or leveraging technology when it comes to managing your people and also uh, when it comes to acquiring talent? Well, um, I will preface my comments by saying, uh, as I said before, I've been a chief HR officer, HR officer now. Uh, this is my third time. Um, in this role, um, I've really had much more technological um, innovation than any previous role, but I'm very clear it has nothing to do with me. I really am clear about that. Um, and the reasons why 
I'm kind of blessed to be in this situation is before I came to the company, the, it had already made investment decisions in terms of um, we're, we're doing Global Workday and, and uh, many of the sort of contemporary tools and, uh, uh, and, and software that, that you need these days. That, that decision had been made. And then secondly, I've got some team members who are just really into um, this stuff, understand it. And, um, you know, one of the pieces of wisdom you hopefully get along the way is find good people and then get out of the way because they'll do it much better than I could ever do it. Um, and so um, we've actually been very active in, in technology. We've, um, we've done our global work day. We were relatively early um, in the use of uh, selection tools. Um, I will say we've also been pretty thoughtful about how to use them because we heard the, the lessons that some of us have had in terms of uh, rate of bias and, and actually they, um, if done badly, they take you away from the goal of using them in the first place, which is actually to attract more, more diverse uh, employees in, into your model. Um, and then um, we've taken that sort of foundation of technology and through the work on future of work, we got into the notion of a skills accelerator. We recognized that um, our workforce in the future was going to be much more focused on skills and experiences rather than years of experience or kind of pedigree on a resume. Um, and um, so we were fairly early um, um, users uh, of the idea of, of a skills accelerator, basically saying to our people, um, help us understand the, the skills that you have. And, and so I think um, a lot of people got excited about the idea of skills as a way of unlocking talent that could come into the company. For me, it was boy, oh boy, we know a lot more now about the 50,000 people that work for us, all right? Um, and so we've got 85% of our employees have imported their LinkedIn profiles. We've um, partnered with very good technology partners. We've got skills-based systems now that actually um, help us understand the skills that are resident in the organization. And so the way that's playing out now is... Um, where people want to take on uh, the opportunity to upskill or reskill, um, we're doing that through skills academies, the skills accelerators. And then the latest breakthrough, which is the one that I think is just really cool, is, is this notion of the talent marketplace, where um, before um, somebody's career opportunities was based upon really their boss, if the boss was willing to um, make them available to opportunities and the rest of the company, how well connected their boss was, you know, drill. Um, and that tended to work better if you look like the boss and, and um, you, you know, everything was similar. And with the talent marketplace, through the use of AI and the skills um, uh, data that we've now got, um, the software is reaching out to you as an employee saying, hey, we, we think based upon the skills that you've got, here are some new opportunities that you may not have thought of. And not just, um, we don't want people doing the same job in disguise time after time. That's not good for them. It's not good for us. 
And it's not just the adjacency right next door, which is pretty obvious. You don't need AI to do that. Um, but the AI is now saying, do you realize that based with these skills, have you thought about this opportunity over here? And so it really has the potential to unlock um, a lot of the potential that was always kind of latent in the organization. And the, the sort of the real icing on the cake for us is um, we believe that it's going to be a real promoter of, of, of true inclusion, of un unlocking the kind of transparency, access to opportunities that our diverse employees said that they always wanted. So we're early days on this, but we're really excited by it. Your, your embrace of this uh, talent marketplace concept is very admirable. Have you gathered any data to see where you're seeing more traction in a certain kind of uh, employees, certain demographics, uh, uh, and are you providing any incentives for people to participate? Um, we probably had, uh, you know, anytime you make one of these changes, you have the early adopters. So people that were more sort of tech savvy, they were into this. Um, so we did a lot of what I would call kind of encouragement of employees. So we got to 30% participation quickly. After that, it was hard work. Um, and then once we said to people that if you want to be considered for internal mobility opportunities, we're going to be doing that based upon the skills that you tell us about. And your chances are going to be much better if you tell us about the skills you've got rather than leaving us to guess. That way we got to 85% much, um, much more quickly so that, that First phase quick, middle phase slow, third phase uh, quite fast. Um, and then the other 15% that aren't in it are probably in, um, in professions where they really are experience-based models where there actually isn't a lot of mobility. The nature of, of how value is added is years and years of experience in a particular space. So um, I think also... Once you can share some stories with uh, with employees about, you know, Sally here used the talent marketplace. Now she's doing a job that she always wanted to be able to do uh, because of her participation in that. Uh, all of those, I think, are sort of reinforcing of the direction that you're trying to get people to take. And what kind of uh, opportunities show up on the talent marketplace? Are these uh, gigs or are they longer term projects? They started, we've started with um, full-time roles. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly see um, other places that go. So um, internal gigs, um, you know, short-term uh, projects and uh, stretch projects, that's what we're weaving in now. Um, we are weaving in external hiring into the talent marketplace as well. It's the same tools and technology. And obviously at some point we're going to be um, – accessing the external gig market as well to bring in sort of short-term uh, spot talent for particular opportunities. So once you've got the, the framework and the technology, it's pretty scalable. And I think that's the big difference than, you know, we had these kinds of thoughts 20 years ago. We just never had technology that was scalable and, and sort of reliable to be able to do this, you know, in, in large numbers. And uh, in terms of the external, the financial sector, you know, I, I used to be uh, on Wall Street a number of years back. So it's generally, uh, you, you know, you know, not, um, I guess 
not, not willing to embrace um, external workers, especially gig workers, uh, largely because of regulation. There are other issues, right? So security is a big issue. Um, so how do you see that evolving with the pandemic? Um, I would say I've only seen change at the margins on that. And I'm not sure that that is um, altogether for good reason, other than I think most of us were very, very focused on the employees that we had and making sure that, A, they were sort of safe and healthy. And then what the pandemic has done for a lot of companies is sort of disrupted business models. Um, when you disrupt business models, you disrupt employees. And so we were primarily using technology as a way of trying to give the employees who were good people being disrupted by change they had nothing to do with other opportunities within the company. And so I would say for the last year, that's been our focus. Um, and it's a natural evolution to think more about um, sort of the market for external talent. Um, but as you say, there are some um, some constraints, particularly in financial services, that I don't think we should overdo, but that there are more considerations in financial services companies than there would have been in other companies that I've worked for along the way. So you, you've touched on skills, uh, and in this era we are in, skill sets are evolving rapidly. Uh, thinking about the skills that you need for an HR manager to thrive, uh, what, what, what advice you would give to HR leaders who are trying to transform their HR function? Yeah, I, I would say the one skill that continues to be the priority for all of my CHRO colleagues that uh, I respect and, and, and talk to a lot we are all focused on business acumen, um, certainly in our top two or three. So I'll get on to other skills in a minute. But the thing that we can never, ever walk away from is HR people are business people. You cannot be a business person unless you're curious about business, knowledgeable about business. You can talk to business and be credible um, in discussions around the business. And all of your HR skills, you don't get to use them unless you've got that, that kind of uh, credibility with your colleagues. So for me, the one that I will continue to emphasize um, until I'm, I'm done with my career is that the, the biggest lever for HR folks is credibility on business issues, just the, the, the sheer curiosity and acumen around business. Um, if you believe my thesis about the future of work, you know, the clue was in the title, it's about the work. Um, if I think about um, all of the things in which HR has built expertise during the course of my um, now pretty long career, you know, we, we uh, industrial relations, employee relations, then we got into talent and organization and development, management development, analytics, all, all sorts of things. The one thing that HR has never been expert in is work, the work of the organization. So one of the things that um, we're promoting quite hard at, at Prudential is if you're in HR, you need to be curious and, and expert about the nature of work. So um, 
that doesn't mean everybody needs to be an expert, but you need to know how to leverage the expert of uh, the expertise of colleagues in this area. So um, that that's one emerging skill set that I think is really important for HR people. The other ones I think are probably more obvious. Um, clearly, ease with technology, ease with data. Um, uh, empathy counts more than it ever has counted. Um, uh, curiosity counts more than it's ever counted. But I think the next big leap forward for HR is expertise in work. So given the last few months, um, let's say you are E.M. Forrester or Aldous Huxley writing the next novel on the future workforce, what, what does it look like? Um, I remember, you know, when dinosaurs walked the earth, I remember uh, as, as a young sort of entry-level HR person hearing about theories of sort of the core and the periphery. And it was the idea of um, the corporation uh, sort of in, in, a, in the middle of a set of concentric circles of, um, you know, these are the people who are kind of the core of the enterprise, who will be the full-time employees of the enterprise. And then um, there would be various levels of interaction with segments of talent um, further and further away from the core. And really what we've done over time is we've given those new labels, so now we call them gig workers and, and talent, whatever else, but we could never do it in a scalable way because we didn't have the, the tools and the technology to do it. So I think that's where we're going. Um, the thing that's going to make it effective is, the, is really the un understanding of the nature of work. What is the work that drives the competitive advantage of companies? What is the work that we need to be doing ourselves versus the work that we can have done for us by others? Um, where can it be done? Who can do it? Um, how can it be done, at what cost level, what location, all of that. I, I think now the ability to sort of pull all of those elements together into a cohesive framework. So I'm not describing anything in that answer, Harpreet, that um, is fundamentally different than what we've learned over the last 12 months. But what we learned over the last 12 months was fundamentally different than what we believed for the previous 10 or 15 years. All right. And so, um, I think sometimes in, in HR, there's the fascination of, I need to go and create a new mousetrap. Um, I think the, the key to success for us in the next few years is stop, learn from this experience. Plenty of people have the same experience. Some people learn from it, others it passes them by. We need to be able to learn from the experience that we've, we've had, take all of the positives out of that, and that becomes our new playbook for how we move forward with confidence. Um, knowing that we don't know what's coming at us because that's the nature of the world that we live in, but the adaptability that we've proven that we've got, the ability to sort of um, pivot to use the, the cliche of the, of the day and, and sort of adapt to the challenges and know that we can do it, I think that's priceless. That's great. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Lucien, for this wonderful opportunity. I've learned a lot. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it, it, it's great to, uh, to know that we have uh, people like you trying to make sense of all of this and, and help us see the patterns that will take us forward. But 
it's it's a great topic and uh, one that I'm very enthusiastic about.